This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week I want to talk about people who do politics but not as we know it. Not the politicians or the think tanks or even, dare I say it, the journalists. But how does someone bring about change in policy or even the law but outside the political party system? What role is technology playing in that and what should the response be to the rise in youth engagement in the political process? As ever, do get in touch and let us know what you think of the podcast. Email redbox at thetimes.co.uk or tweet at timesredbox. And no one's posted a review on iTunes for ages, so if you say something nice about us, uh, I'll give you a mention next week. Right then, down to business. My guests this week are David Babs from the online petition website 38 Degrees, campaigner Caroline Criado-Perez, whose many success include getting a woman on the £10 note, and Matteo Bergamini from the youth politics website Shoutout UK. Welcome to you all, and we begin with David Babs. Politics today is more about which issues you care about than what party you belong to. Technology enables people to unite around common concerns to influence decision makers. And with a minority government and huge divisions within political parties, people power can have a big positive influence over how we do Brexit. So David, just explain to people who don't know what 38 Degrees is and what you do and why you do it. So 38 Degrees at its heart is a network of ordinary citizens across across the UK, about 3 million of us, um, who decide together using the internet which issues we want to campaign on and then um, come, to get, come together to choose different tactics, different strategies to try and make that change happen. So often people encounter us first by signing an online petition on the 38 Degrees website, but then subsequently we'll go on to do all kinds of other things, whether it's... Um, uh, contacting their member of parliament, going to visit their member of parliament, um, hosting a discussion in their local area, writing to their local newspaper or chipping in to fund research or in- investigations or opinion polling to help boost the campaign issue. And so how does a petition come about? Because you're right, you know, people see it shared on Twitter and Facebook, you know, sign this petition. How does that petition come about? Has there been a sort of democratic process before? Or is it just one person can set that up? So, so there are two ways a campaign can start at 38 degrees. One is that we've got a small staff team based in London and Edinburgh. And um, every week we're surveying the, the 38 degrees membership, asking them what, what issues they'd like to campaign about. And we sit down each Monday looking at all the, all the suggestions that have come in. And we create as a staff team campaigns for our members to get involved in. 
However, members also have the opportunity to short circuit that whole process and go onto the website and start their own campaigns. And um, I'd say the the campaigns that we we push push most heavily probably are about an even split of campaigns that have been created by members or campaigns which have been created by staff informed by the democratic participation of 38 Degrees members. And what would you just sort of single out as being your sort of greatest hits? What's the ones that have had the biggest impact? Well, right, right now, I think we're having quite a big impact on um, on the debate around um, delegated powers, statutory instruments, Henry VIII clauses, as we're calling them, um, within within the EU withdrawal bill. Um, I think we played a big role in persuading uh, George Osborne to to back off on cuts to tax credits a couple of years ago. Probably the issue that. Um, we first grew, grew to people's attention with was a campaign a few years ago to um, persuade the coalition government to dr- drop plans to um, sell off England's forests. I, do, also, I remember that. I do remember that well. And that, I, from a journalist point of view, that was the first time that I sort of come across. Yeah, that, that was, I think, when we hit escape velocity and I guess proved that um, we could really, by, by enabling lots of people to come together, we could really challenge the government on a, a policy that they were, were defending to the hill and get them to ultimately stand up in parliament and admit it was a bad idea i was whenever i think of 38 degrees i always think of lots of nhs campaigns. yeah no, that's true we've and i think there are there are lots of lots of local campaigns on the nhs so there are hospitals still open around 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 the country thanks to campaigns that 38 degrees members have got involved in and then also lots of efforts to push for more funding for the mm. nhs to secure some amendments to Andrew Lansley's reorganisation of the NHS but I guess I didn't list that as a runaway success because I I don't think we would feel we secured quite as many amendments <laughs> to Andrew Lansley's NHS plans pause, as we would have liked the pause when they paused the bill to sort of stop and take stock you, you that that was a time of 38 degrees that, I mean, it was that was all around the time of Forest and sort of genuine yeah. U-turn mania in the Certainly, the pause had our paw prints on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, just, <laughs> oh my god! Uh, we could always edit that out later. Um, just, but did you come up with it just then? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, as long as it wasn't rehearsed, that's the main thing. Now, I read. I don't know if this is right. Is thirty-eight degrees? Does it take its name from the angle at which snowflakes come together to form an avalanche? Well, the angle of a slope at which an avalanche is most likely to to start. So it's like the tipping point angle for snow. Though mm. snow experts have been in touch to say it depends on a lot of geological and <laughs> atmospheric conditions but that would make a poor website name now um i imagine that when that sort of came about the word snowflake didn't have the connotations that it does now because uh, that was no. just frozen water falling out of the sky do you worry about being sort of too party political that you or is that just inevitable if you are essentially always campaigning against the government you're always going to look like you're being anti whichever parties in government at the time. I think it's definitely true that as a mechanism for accountability and for ordinary people to challenge the government, that whoever is in government is going to find 38 degrees at times a bit annoying. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, when I, when I speak to our members about what they value about 38 degrees, our, our independence from political parties is, is always very close to or at the top of their list. And I think a lot of MPs, including from the Conservative Party, even though they might see we're, we're find us annoying on occasion when we're challenging them to do something which is difficult or difficult for them to do or that they don't wish to do, I think they, a lot of them would recognise at the same time that 
we play a role in democracy. And they'd recognise that independence. I mean, just in the last week, 38 Degrees members voted to back um, Kevin Hollenrake MP, a Conservative MP's private members bill, because they agreed with what it was about. It was about extending parental leave to, to parents who'd lost, um, lost, lost a child in, in tragic circumstances. And, you know, I think to our members, it didn't really matter what, what party an MP yeah. was from. It was the, about the issue that, that, of course, someone who's just lost a child shouldn't be in danger of losing their job or struggling to make the rent because they because they can't make it into work the next day. I tell you, given the, a lot of what you do is sort of focus at younger people, it is true to say that most people don't go around and spend their whole time thinking, I am a Tory, and therefore I agree entirely with all the, everything the Tories are doing and not with the Labour Party. And this sort of move to sort of more issue-based politics... Yeah, no, I mean, there's always going to be a small percentage of people that are sort of religious when it comes to political parties and sort of pray to the gods of other conservatives or Labour or whatever those may be. But I think more young people are moving towards more, definitely more issue based politics. And I think you saw that at the last uh, snap election. Um, and I think things like 30 degrees and what, what you guys do sort of resonates a lot with young people because you're talking, you're tackling the issues regardless of where those issues are, where those um, campaigns come from, be it conservatives labor or god forbid ukip i think i'd go even a bit further of that but i think one of the things that um a lot of people find most frustrating about the way westminster politics happens is too much adherence to party line that sense of um party line and partisanship obscuring finding common ground or just having a sensible discussion admitting when you're wrong about something and actually i think what one the example you use of the private members bill on parental leave they've also done the same thing with the chris bryant private members bill on protection for emergency workers and i think it's a small effort by number 10 to look like they are reaching out beyond the normal sort of and also if you've got a slim or non-existent majority in the commons you need to do a bit of that yeah um and you're right most people would be completely baffled by the idea. well it's not a labor or toy idea that police officers shouldn't be beaten up in the street so or paramedics or whatever precisely and i think that's why 38 degrees members voted to support both those campaigns but i do think that there needs to be you know a placing of the issues within an overall structure of how you understand society um and there could be a danger of things becoming too atomized you can't just focus on little issues without being aware of how they tie into a bigger let's say economic argument and i think that's where political parties will always be important because they will be rooted in a certain way of viewing the world and how they want it to change. And also, presumably, to what extent do you sort of police the content of the petitions? Because you could, I mean, as we've seen in recent days when there's a row about the welfare system, you can draw up a petition which makes it sound absolutely terrible and then the government can draw up a position about exactly the same system, which doesn't sound so bad at all. So to what extent do you sort of police well what you haven't done there you haven't taken into account this this and this or or do, is it up to users to to do that we, we do a bit of policing because we 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 have a set of values as an organization um we're not we're not just a kind of neutral platform we we, we are seeking to make the uk a fairer more democratic um nicer place to live and so we wouldn't allow any petition on our site which was was was, was hateful yeah. um that's obviously a, a problem um in some parts of the way that politics happens on the internet and that's not something we want on our site we definitely would would not have something up that was inaccurate or, or, or deliberately misleading yeah. i remember sitting in the 38 degrees office thinking why do our members want us to campaign so much about forests um surely the nhs would be a bigger priority for them um but went with what they they voted 
voted for. A few months later was lapping up praise as a strategic <laughs> genius for identifying <laughs> that campaign. And we also went on to have a big um, impact on the NHS. So I, I think there's a mindset thing here that, again, is part of why um, so many people find, find um, Westminster politics so frustrating, that there's, a, there's kind of quite a narrow group of people who think they have all the answers. I think that's what turned a lot of people off politics in the past as well, where you've got this sort of insular, almost vanguard of people that see party politics as almost like the be-all and end-all and it's, you know, we disagree with you because you're red and we're blue and we think this way and, we, and you think that way. Whereas obviously politics is a lot more than that and to taking single issues is, is not the be-all of politics as well. You know, they, we need political parties that create the sort of grander scheme of things and so forth. But I think it's important to look at those single issues which sometimes get get left out of the conversation or, or get pushed aside, aside because of party line. Just before we move on from this, what are the, what are the sort of slightly obscure issues which are bubbling up at the moment that could be the new forest, the things that you're saying, I'm not sure we should be. The one that I thought was going to be obscure was the the, the, the delegated legislation within, yeah. within the EU withdrawal bill, which I, I never in a million years thought <laughs> that we'd be involving over half a million people in a campaign about statutory instruments. When you talk to people like the Hansard Society, who've been banging on about this stuff for decades, they can't believe it either. Well, it's fascinating stuff. Um, let, let's move on then. That's the, sort of the upside of um, technology. But let's move on and look at some of the, the downsides that come, come with that. And uh, this is Caroline. Pre-social media campaigning was tough, often thankless, and all but impossible for an individual without the backing of a big organisation. The only real recourse was to approach your local MP or maybe your local paper. Social media has transformed that power dynamic and made it easier for someone with little official or structural power to bring together politicians across party lines, make a splash in the media, and ultimately to make a change. But just as campaigners have been given a voice, so have those who want to retain the status quo and are prepared to threaten violence to do so. I said at the beginning you were probably best known for getting a woman on the £10 note, which later became uh, Jane Austen. Just talk about how that came about. How did you sort of find yourself? Presumably you didn't get up one morning and say, I'm going to become the face of a national campaign that will ultimately see Jane Austen on a £10 note. Um, no. <laughs> no. And in fact, I that's never how any of the sort of campaigns um, that I that I run start. Um, they always start with me getting angry about something. And just sort of, and it always has to be something that I just think is so ridiculous that I can't understand how this decision has been taken. Um, I don't really know why. I think it's that that galvanizes me into action because I just can't cope with the, with the idea of such stupidity. So the idea that, um, or the revelation that the bank was going to remove the only female historical figure we had from the back of our banknotes and replace her with Winston Churchill just felt to me like such an obvious example of someone not thinking this through, not thinking through the, the decision. Um, so I decided to challenge the decision um, and I started a campaign. Um, or I started a petition on change.org. Sorry, David. Um, you didn't <laughs> do right. those Next petitions. Time. All of the, those sorts of sites and even the, the official parliament petition website is cluttered with petitions which have... 50 signatures or you know yeah. everybody. so how do you then get to a place where it sort of takes off apart from obviously the the strong the, and power of yeah. the argument but how do you <laughs> how do you as an individual you're not politician or uh, like you said you're not part of a big organization yeah. so how, how do you get that to take off well twitter's really important i'm in a slightly different position because i do also write as well mm. i was sort of quite low profile and twitter just enables you to get the message out and what is really, really important is that it's not just getting the message out to ordinary people, although that is important. It's getting the message out to journalists. Mm. 
Because what I think a lot of people who, if there are still people who sort of scoff at Twitter and say, oh, it's just people posting about their breakfast. Um, That's Instagram. Yeah, it's, it's Instagram now. <laughs> See, I don't know. I use Instagram for pictures of my dog. The great thing about Twitter is that all the journalists are on Twitter and the media still has huge power in this country, a huge power to get messages out and to get people to make a difference. The difference with, with Twitter is that instead of the media deciding what the story is, Twitter can help push them towards what that story is. I think you're right. And from a journalist's perspective, in the sort of old days, pre-Twitter and social media and that sort of thing, you'd have, even when I was working on a local paper, someone would come in and they've got a petition and, you know, it was a couple of hundred signatures. You just sort of think, well, you're just one of, even in a town like Taunton where I was working, you were one of loads of people who had a petition. You know, mm -hmm. how do you, but what Twitter can do is show a journalist, this is taking off. I can yeah. see, you know, other people tweeting about it, how many retweets it's got. And, that, you know, so. Yeah. It, it provides that sort of visual sense of something taking off. Yeah, and I think it's harder to get your petition noticed now. Is, is, that, um, is that right, do you think, David? A petition rarely wins a campaign on its own. A petition plays two roles. Oh, it, absolutely. It, it, it plays the role of it. It's, it's like it demonstrates a large body of public support, which is often a, a valuable precondition for winning a campaign. But secondly, it's a, a way in for people who can then be invited to participate in other forms of action and be take, taken on a journey with yeah. that campaign. I um, think a lot of people don't realise that. It is something I find slightly frustrating about when people start petitions, is that they, a lot of people seem to think that if they just do a petition, the change will happen. And that's not, you know, of course, that's not how it works. I mean, the great thing about these petition websites is, of course, you can get the word out and it's online and people can see that other people have been signing it. But actually, the most important thing about petitions is that it's just a massive database for a campaigner. That's the really important thing. So you have the contact details of all these people who've said, I really care about this issue. And then you can mobilise them to tweet their um, MP, to write letters to their MP, to turn up to demonstrations. You know, if you're just thinking of the petition in the way that it used to be, which was just, you know, a piece of paper. On a clipboard, that you, yeah. which is then sort of posted then, to the council. Exactly. Whatever, yeah. Then, you know, that's not that's not what a petition is anymore. Yeah. A petition is basically a database. But then, as you alluded to in your intro, there's a downside to this technology and to Twitter in particular, and the, the dreadful abuse that you've received while you've been doing a perfectly straightforward campaign about banknotes. Mm. At what point did that sort of start happening? Did it sort of happen immediately or just talk us through sort of... So I would say that during the campaign, I got what I would classify as trolling, which is just sort of time-wasting sexism, you know, get back in the kitchen, make me a sandwich, that kind of thing. Or repeatedly explaining to me that there is in fact the Queen on a banknote because being a woman, I can't turn a banknote over and see that she's there and um, woman's, woman's plenty i mean let's yeah, not go one. mad exactly i mean <laughs> you're never allowed more than one so th that, there was that and obviously you know that's just irritating but whatever it was once the campaign was successful that i got my first rape threat and that came i think on the day that the campaign win was announced that the bank of england had their event at um, Chawton House and and unveiled the Jane Austen banknotes. And that was unpleasant. <laughs> but I don't think it was until the next day that it really, really took off. And I just remember sitting uh, at home, looking at my screen and just seeing all these threats 
really graphic, detailed rape and death threats, mutilation threats um, about how I was, you know, which bits of my body were going to be violated and using what um, and how I was going to be tortured to death. And um, and just this, it was just horrifying, you know, just seeing it all stream in and just realizing there's just so much. There's so many people who want to rape me. Um and yeah. what do you do in that situation? Um, well, I started crying. Yeah. I could have had an immediate emotional reaction, obviously. Um, I called my boyfriend at the time and was like, you have to come home. I just, I, I can't cope with this. Um, I've forgotten your question. Sorry. Well, you, I, I sort of next? get a bit lost when I yeah, talk yeah, about Yeah, of this course. Stuff. Yeah, I completely. And I don't, I, you know, I don't want to make you sort of go through it all again. But I think it's when people talk about how brilliant Twitter is and the internet, you know, and it is for campaigning and yeah. it gives people a voice, but it, unfortunately it also gives a voice to some of the most dreadful people in the country. You know, I mean, I think, I think overall I would say that it's a good thing. So when that happened, Twitter was completely not set up to deal with that kind of abuse. They didn't have a report abuse button in order to report any kind of tweet. You had to go to this separate page and fill in this whole form for each tweet. When you're getting like 100 tweets a minute, you just, you know, you can't do it. So I couldn't report anything. Um, and even if I had had somehow the time to be able to report every single one, you know, you had to type out what the tweet said. I didn't want to type out, you know, well, I won't repeat what yeah, was yeah. said, but, you know, I didn't want to type that out. Um, Twitter's evolved since then. And I sort of feel like this, this links a little bit to what you were saying about there being people, you know, this small section of people at Westminster, or this small section of people creating social media, who have a particular perspective, who have a particular life experience. The people at Twitter didn't deliberately set up a platform that would make it incredibly easy for people to bombard women with rape and death threats. But that is what they created. But that's what happened, yeah, Because yeah. it didn't occur to them that that was what was going to happen. And so they hadn't put those checks in place and they hadn't put the, the ability for women to deal with it. And they've got a lot better since then women have been given a voice and people are now aware that actually this is a huge problem. You know, for example, what's going on at the moment with the Harvey Weinstein stuff and the Me Too hashtag, suddenly a lot of people are aware, no, pretty much every woman you know has been sexually assaulted. In that way, I think that overall it's better. It's been better for politics. Uh, there is a pretty high pr price to pay for people like me who want to do it. Um, and Going into that campaign, no, obviously I didn't realise I was going to get rape and death threats. I would still do it again. Well, that, that was going to be my next question. I would still do that campaign again. Does it worry you that, that your experience, because you've talked about it completely understandably and you've brought about change with Twitter, this puts people off? Of course it does. I had so many women getting in touch with me when I was getting all the rape and death threats saying, I just don't dare say anything. You know, you have to think about why these men were so threatened by ultimately a line drawing on a piece of paper. Um, and what that's about is the type of man who feels that the public realm belongs to him. And he's growing up and seeing, oh, but there are all these women here. We're going to have two women on a banknote and feels very, very threatened. Um, because, you know, the way we bring up boys and men tells them that they need to be the dominant ones. Our culture is permeated by men. It is dominated by men. And so when there is a tiny little incursion of women, it is seen as a threat. And the only way for it not to be seen as a threat is for it to become normal. Yeah. So we have to keep doing keep this. On, keep because on. until it's just completely normal 
for a woman to be a politician or a woman to be anything, and you don't have to say female politician, this is going to carry on happening. No, no, I, I completely agree. I, you know, I mean, I see it both in uh, journalism and in politics. And you're completely right that until you sort of just have to hope that there, there are enough women who'll keep buggering on until it becomes normal. Yeah. Because, but it's, you know, and I've seen that, you know, both journalists and politicians and the abuse that they get, and it's just appalling. Mm. Let's hope that changes. Let's move on, though. Let's talk about young people and educating them in the political process. And this is Matteo. It's becoming more important for politics to become a compulsory subject in schools so that young people have a broader understanding of politics, which would then encourage them to vote in elections. It's interesting to look at how young people voted in this election. It seems as though young people vote for policies, not parties. And we want to question, is this the best way of voting? And what age should politics be taught in schools? So, again, I find, this, I find this a really fascinating topic. And I've got a 16-year-old daughter at home who is sort of interested in politics, but not really. And I sort of feel, you know, I keep trying to prod her to be a bit more interested. But before, before we get onto that, just explain to listeners what Shout Out UK is. Sure. So we're a youth news network that tries to get more young people engaged and involved in politics. We use journalism and education as a means of doing that. So on the journalism, we've got our website. It's all user-generated content from 15 to 25-year-olds that allows them to write about issues that they care about. So talking about problems, concerns, or um, just topics that they, they find interesting and they want to highlight. Um, it's all edited by our editors um, in-house so that we check for facts, uh, grammar, spelling, etc., just as, as best we can as a small startup. That's better than lots of quite major news websites, checking well, for we, facts we and spelling. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we do try. Um, and then on the sort of educational side, we run a political literacy course, which we take into secondary schools. Um, started off in a people referral unit in Croydon, which was challenging, but it gave us a sort of scope and it gave us the, the, the sort of the test run to then expand into other schools in London and then Dartford, Cambridge, and we're now also in Yorkshire as well. And you started this while you were still doing your degree? Yeah, so I was in my um, third year at university and because dissertations and exams weren't stressful enough, I decided to start off something for myself. Uh, so I started up this uh, business shout at UK and um, once I graduated, I managed to turn into my full-time job. What happens when you go into a school and do the political literacy course well so first of all we connect with the, with the teacher who sort of says oh, i don't think my kids will be interested in that they normally then give it to the kids ask them you know is this something that you'd be interested in there is normally an overwhelming yes um and then we go in and start delivering and then the the students that we deliver to depends on the school so some give it to the gifted and talented some give it to the literally the complete opposite so kids that that need a boost up and some give it to entire years um normally sort of year nines and tens and what is it? Is it the nuts and bolts of politics? Yes, that's what we try and, and cover. And how, presumably, you have to, do we have to be careful not to look like you're taking sides? It's, it's a, it's a lesson so. in the political process, not in the pros and cons of one party or another or an issue or another. Yeah, yeah. so basically, it's so it's divided into three units because we're an AQ accredited centre, so they get a unit award statement at the end from, from AQA. Um, and, you know, one sort of deals with local national politics. So what's an MP, what's a councillor, how you can involve yourself in those two, how you can become one if you want to, um, how does a bill become a law. Then Unit 2 deals with um, media literacy, so talk about various different news networks and, and papers and sort of look at how to critically analyse the media so that just because something has a million likes doesn't necessarily make it fact or gospel. There are, you know, there are, uh, there are various different opinions and there's always two sides to a story. Um, we also cover very, very basics around political theory. So we do talk about, you know, what is left and what is right wing. So 
when, I don't know, a paper says that Jeremy Corbyn is dragging Labour to the left, for example, what does that actually mean? Um, and then in Unit 3 deals with public speaking, debating and presentation skills, which are relevant in politics, but you can take to any career yeah. you dare choose and, it, and it's relevant. And we thought those things are important because private schools, and when I say private school, I don't mean just any private school, the top private schools teach all of this stuff. And the majority of us don't get it. And then you can see how the ones that have this information end up going into politics and things like that. And because they understand how the system works, they understand how politics works, they naturally have more power than people that don't, because you know how to work the system to to, do your favour. David, to what extent do you think technology and the internet and sites like yours are making people more politically literate? Is there a risk that actually become more siloised and only seeing news stories, campaigns, which basically they, they already agree with? Uh, I, I think the honest answer is both, isn't it? And I guess that's that's one of the things that we recognise a responsibility to try and make sure it's more more the former, more about um, learning and, and in, increasing understanding rather rather than just kind of like having your own prejudices reinforced. Yeah. But we definitely do see a lot of that. I hear from a lot of 38 Degrees members who are in a dialogue with their Member of Parliament who didn't didn't know who their Member of Parliament was before. Um, for example, during our, our campaign against... Um, the cuts to tax credits, we were asking people when they signed the petition to indicate if they were directly affected by cuts to tax credits and then supported those people to go and organise meetings with their MPs. And that was definitely a, a, a demographic who most politicians would would say are like apathetic, aren't going to engage. That's one of the reasons they thought they could get away with those cuts to tax credits in the first place. I think a lot of people assume that young people aren't interested because young people haven't engaged en masse with politics for a long time. And it's it's that kind of argument that, you know, young people are interested. We are interested in issues like climate change or the NHS or all of these kind of things. But it's like banging your head against a brick wall. When you turn 18, you're told you need to vote, you need to engage we don't have a clue how the system works. It's the equivalent of giving someone that hasn't that has never studied Mandarin a book in Mandarin. The pictures could be beautiful. It, you <laughs> might tell them it's the best thing ever to read, but it, they, they could try and read it. But if they can't, they'll put it down and never pick it up again. And that's for me how politics is. You know, you see people that are trying to engage, but because it's become so convoluted, and when you talk, when you see politicians speaking in Parliament on BBC, you know, Parliament, they almost seem seem like something cut out of the night of the 1400s in the way they sort of talk <laughs> and debate. And all that stuff puts young people off. and it's. I think it just puts people off. And I well, yeah. I mean, I speak to readers of the Red Box email who, from outside Westminster, you know, what I would call a normal person. Yeah. Um, and they say things like, oh, I don't really get politics, or I don't do politics. And I quite like how you explain it and there's some jokes. and yeah. But it's not really my, you know, it's not really my thing, or I don't understand it. You do understand. Yeah, politics is everyone. You do mm-hmm. understand it. I suppose the risk sometimes is if they go through that whole, whole process and then something doesn't happen at the end of it and they think, well, what was the point in that? Mm. There needs to be some... In the, they can't win every campaign, but some sort of sense that they yes, are. Yes, you can. You can win every campaign, yeah. yes. But if <laughs> you, you've got a 100%. Yes, I do. There we are. <laughs> that, so, that you know, I've got a reputation to Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just very good at campaigns. I remember when I was on local papers, you never <laughs> launched a campaign. You didn't know you were going to win. So you, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it does make it, you know, a bit nerve wracking. I mean, I'm known for being a really successful campaigner. What if I set this off and it doesn't happen? It would just be awful. But it did. It's fine. No, the, the, the statue is interesting because the statue is quite an old school thing. In the you know is what they did in the olden days. But it, in terms of its, well, it's become very modern. It's now. high pro. You know, it's a high profile. You know, and, and if 
actually lots of school children do come into Parliament and have tours and that sort of mm. thing. And if they, mm. you know, have a walk around Parliament Square outside, mm. that is quite a big, you know, it is literally a symbolic thing. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it, it feels quite an old-fashioned aim. Well, I mean, I think that that's quite an old-fashioned view, if you don't mind my saying well, so. Well, that is fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, because if you look at what's going on, you know, for example, in America, with all the debate about the Confederate statues, yeah. you know, the idea of representation is something that people care about a lot. Um, and I think the reason that we have, you know, sort of feel like statues are old fashioned is because they just sort of seem like they're, they're part of the furniture rather than like, you know, a white man might be seen as part of the furniture. We don't really notice them. And, you know, it's, it, it sort of says a lot to me that I've been in Parliament Square so many times. And it was only this one particular time I suddenly realised, hang on a minute, they're all men. How, you know, how is this possible? I think it was 2016. I just, I can't believe someone hasn't done mm. anything about it. And just because statues aren't there sort of consciously trying to push a certain message, that doesn't mean that they're not pushing a message. Absolutely. And if, you know, and if there are kids who go to Parliament Square and they look around and, you know, a young girl thinks, oh, I might want to become an MP. It's only the men who get so far up that they get a well, statue. I mean, that's a that's you know, such a strong message. One of the things that I really wanted for this statue is to try to replicate what has happened with Gandhi. If you go to Parliament Square, there will always be people taking selfies with Gandhi because it's one of the statues that's kind of accessible. You can stand up on the steps next to him and put your arms around him. Um, and, you know, I've seen people telling their kids about who Gandhi was, you know, it's such an incredible thing to have there. Um, and that's what I wanted to have for the suffrage statues so that, you know, young children could interact with it and parents could say, you know, that was the woman who meant that, you know, talking to a young girl, that's why you can vote. You know, she had to fight for that. I'd say it's so much better because the Churchill one is so inaccessible. You can sort mm. of, you can't even really see it if you're in Parliament Square because it's so high up. I think I completely agree. I think that's sort of, it's become a much nicer space that. David, what, what do you think about this idea in particular of teaching politics in school? Is it possible to teach politics? To an extent, I think. I mean, politics isn't it? it politics has, has has rules, has concepts, and it's definitely a benefit for people to to understand them. Um, but I think I think you also learn politics by experiencing it. You learn democracy by experiencing it, and so I I, I think there's also a role alongside that formal education. I think for schools to be thinking about how they can actually operate democratically give kids a say in in how the schools run so they get to to experience politics um and also i think there's a role in every in, for everyone in participating and learning by doing i was just going to say that yeah, i mean yeah i agree with you i think we do need um schools to take part of but it needs to be in partnership with i think having people engage in it and learning and participating and so forth yes that that's all well and good but most people don't you know you've got 50 year olds that have never engaged in mm. politics and the only time they have is because they need to pay their taxes or they need to have they have some quarrel with a councillor about bins or something like that yeah. that's most people you know what we're talking about today isn't what most people no. deal with on a regular basis although we might want to think that just before we wind up because i'm conscious of um we've nearly run out of time we've been talking about what you can do from outside the political process but would any of you ever take the leap and actually become an MP? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd be very surprised if they'd have me, no. <laughs> okay. uh, not for the moment, no. It's oh, uh, more, uh, uh, maybe, that's, that's a, a non-denial denial. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, 
No, I think the more I mean, I'm 25, so I've still got a long way to go. But I think the more I, the more I run shadow, the more I'm involved in this world. I think the more I get, I get pushed away from <laughs> from mainstream. Have you ever been asked? I was asked to stand as a uh, for the London Assembly, and I decided not to. And what put you off? What put me off is party politics. Actually, I like being able to be 100% authentic to what I believe in. Um, and the well, that's why you need to, to become prime minister in that case, and you can do what you like. <laughs> Although the current the current incumbent no, yeah, is not. I was going to say Theresa May proves that that's not. That's the case. not always the case. Well, I think that's um, all we've got time for uh, this week. As ever, do sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk. Let us know about any of the issues we've been talking about this week, or if there are any questions about politics that you'd like answered, then get in touch. Redbox at thetimes.co.uk or tweet at Times Redbox. But for now, from a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Caroline, David, Matteo and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.